So this is actually one of the hardest teachings I've ever done. I didn't know that until I just did it over at Lincoln Center. So <laughs> think of me up here. Um, we're starting the new year with a three-week series called A Unique History. And uh, Ed's going to come and Dave's going to come and talk about just God's journey with us as a church through the last 30, 25 years. Um, and I want to share a bit of my story this morning as a teacher at Orchard, who also happens to be, if you hadn't figured it out yet, a woman. Um, and just what that journey has been, I think it's important that the church, just like families, sometimes tell, tell stories about our history and where we've come from and where God has brought us, um, because it will help us discern where God's taking us in the future. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story and Orchard's story this morning, and my prayer is... Um, that it encourages you about your church, this unique church. I pray that it encourages you about the nature and the character of God, who God is and how he works. And I pray that it encourages you about how God uses unlikely people. He always has and he always will. Because if God can use me, I cannot imagine what God can and will do through all of us. If we simply offer ourselves to him and then are either brave enough or stupid, stupid enough, I can't often distinguish between those two, to just take the next step and the next step and the next step and to know that God is at his best. God is at his redemptive best when everything in your life looks the worst. So I think it's important for you to know before I start in on my story that I never wanted to be a pastor. I never pictured myself speaking from up front at a church in any way, shape, or form. I was the little girl begging my mother to not force me to go do the piano recital for which I had practiced for a year. I remember clinging to her legs in her bedroom, trying to convince her that this was a worthless idea and that I was going to panic. I couldn't remember my song. It was called Knock on the Door. And she, of course, being a good parent, forced me to go do the piano recital. And I got up in front of people, played the first note, and forgot my whole song. Turned beet red, like had huge, like a wave of heat come over me and played the last chord. Sat down, said to my mom, I told you so. It was never part of my imagination that I would have a job that caused me to stand up in front of people and talk. It was never any kind of hope, dream, goal, plan, vision of mine at all. This has to be God's idea because it was not mine. And for many years, this may surprise you, I did not believe a woman should lead or teach in the church. And this was due to my training in a campus group at Northwestern University where I went to college outside of Chicago. They held very traditional views about women. And because I was learning to love Jesus through them, I swallowed their views on women hook, line, and sinker. I never really questioned anything. I never did any study or searching on my own. So Chuck and I got married right out of college after dating almost three years long distance. And he got a job in Chicago with a financial services firm, and I started my master's degree in counseling at Trinity Divinity School, which is where Ed Baker and Mike Brost actually got their MDivs. Um, and it was a place where women were kind of second-class citizens, and I was not used to that. I hadn't been raised that way, and my university wasn't that way. In fact, one man even told me that I could best serve God in the kitchen. And I was like, wait, you don't even know if I can cook. 
what are you talking about? It was the strangest thing. So I finished seminary and gave birth to my first daughter, Hannah, just as I was finishing my, my master's thesis. Figured it was a perfect time to have a baby. I didn't have a job, neither did Chuck. We had no real direction, so why not just have a baby? And, and uh, Chuck then decided to start seminary in California. He was going to get his Master of Divinity. So midway through his time in seminary, I became pregnant with our second daughter, Tracy. And six months into that pregnancy, I started to spiral downward into a clinical depression that would rule Chuck's in my life for over three years and actually ended up you know, being the thing that sent us back home to Iowa. This is a very, very dark time um, personally and um, in our marriage. You know, and I can just say three years off the tip of my tongue, but three years just seemed like forever. We were just lost kids. And so Chuck and his parents flew out to California, packed up all of our stuff and got us back home. And this is where all the theological rules about who did what and what roles husbands and wives were each supposed to play just fell apart. We were people focused on survival. And like I said, we moved back to Iowa for what we both believed would be a short amount of time, a place we had both vowed we would never, ever, ever live. Isn't God funny that way? And so Chuck simply carried me on his back for three years. My appendix ruptured. I had sinus surgery with major complications. My husband took and lost his soul to a job for which he was ill-suited. And he did it all for me and for our daughters. And this whole phase of our life reminds me of what A.W. Tozer said about kind of one of the patterns of God throughout history. Tozer said, God never uses a person greatly until he tests them deeply. I had heard it differently. I had heard God never uses a person greatly until he wounds them deeply. Same kind of a thing. So after three hard years, I got better. And so I decided to get pregnant again with Will, because why not? Why wouldn't you just do that right then? Chuck then quit his job, and so we were about to have three children, a house, and no income. My husband was spiritually, physically, and emotionally exhausted from all the years of taking care of me. He had carried me on his back, and so now for a bit, I carried him on mine. We had Will. We started a small business together. We worked together. We shared the housework. Chuck can fold a mean load of laundry. We did childcare and we earned an income together. And then our church fell apart. It was an orchard. It was a church in Waterloo where we were married. And we were in the middle of that church falling apart. And so we fled to Orchard Hill Church as a means of finding safety again and attempting to recover from what felt like another tragedy. And I know that many people find their way to Orchard that way. It seems to be a unique way that God uses Orchard as a place of safety and rest after a church storm. So about this time, I decided to run for school board. I brought a picture of of me at that age and my kids. So you can see, this is about the time I started to teach. William hates that picture, and I can see why now that I actually look at it on the big screen. Sorry about that. It was the only one I could find. I ran for the Waterloo School Board, which strangely was the beginning of me discovering I had the gift of teaching because I had to speak at a public forum during the campaign. And I was scared to death. Remember the piano recital? This is my history with public anything. So I called my dad, who's a lawyer, and I asked him, what do you do when you have to do something you're really, really scared about? 
And he thought for a moment and he said three words. Prepare, prepare, prepare. I will never forget those words. I prepared for like for that forum like there was no tomorrow. And I didn't panic and fall apart. I discovered in that weird moment that I could actually speak in public and that people listened to me. People came and spoke to me after the forum. And then I lost the election, <laughs> which is fascinating. I love it. It was the perfect failure because in the midst of that failure, I discovered something within me that came to life when I spoke and that people responded. And so I began to pray daily that God would find a way to use what I had just discovered about myself in the church. And I had no real vision at all of what that might look like. But I decided to teach an adult Sunday school at Orchard Cedar Falls. And people miraculously listened to me. And they learned. And they came back the next week. And I taught another adult class. And I could feel something different happening with that. Even though I had no real sense or understanding of spiritual gifts. I just really hadn't had anything that would help them make sense to me before. And then there was a moment when everything changed. Everything one night, I remember our small group from Orchard meeting one night in our house, and we started listening to a teaching series from Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And that teaching series was called What the Bible Really Says About Men and Women. Now, I didn't pick that teaching series. I just was getting their teachings every Sunday delivered to me on cassette tapes. This ages me a little bit, doesn't it? So we had to listen to cassette tapes on a boombox. And we were going to party like it was 1999 because it was 1999, okay? So as we listened, I experienced the weirdest thing. The theology that had shackled me for years was methodically being stripped away by a teacher, a biblical teacher that I deeply respected. And my friends from Orchard Hill were not even blinking an eye. And God was whispering to me, I'm not going to let you live in that anymore. And I remember John Ortberg, who was the teacher, saying several things that blew my mind. First of all, he said that when we try to study complex issues and get a handle on what the scriptures have to say about them, we must pay attention to the preponderance of evidence in the whole of the Bible. And not just look at one or two verses pulled out of context of the letters and the culture and the situations they were written in. He reminded us that it is a misreading of the Bible when we read it as if it were written today in a Western modern culture. It doesn't seem like rocket science, but we forget this, that the scriptures were written thousands of years ago. Just to help you get a handle on this, Women in this country could not vote 90 years ago. That was 90 years ago. So imagine a culture in the Middle East more like Saudi Arabia or more like Afghanistan, where today women can't drive and many women, young women, can't go to school, and then go back 2,000 years. That's when the New Testament scriptures were written. It was written in the midst of a patriarchal culture, which meant men dominated, ruled everything. And women were very much second-class citizens, if citizens at all. And yet, 
In the midst of that patriarchy, the scriptures mention women who led things, who were teachers, who were judges, who were prophets, who were church philanthropists, who were deacons, and even one female apostle. And we, because of the culture we live in, we tend to read those names, those mentionings of those women, and we think it's no big deal. But that's because we forget the context of the scriptures and when and where it was written. And then John Wartburg did the unthinkable. He opened up the scriptures to the two passages that most often at face value appear to restrict women from any kind of ministry, especially teaching or leadership in the church. And he went at them head on. And I have the privilege of telling you this morning as we look at these two passages, I don't think in the 15 years I've been here, anyone at Orchard has ever opened these passages from the front and spoken about them. So isn't that fun that that's what we're going to do right now? Aren't you guys excited? I certainly am. (laughs) So we're going to look at the first one. It's from the letter to the church at Corinth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, starting with verse 34. This is what Paul says. He says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak at church. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. There's a group of you, maybe a small group who are thinking to yourself, is that really in the Bible? Because I've never read that before. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, if we really followed that, what on earth would happen to the church? Can you imagine? And there's another group who are thinking right now, what on earth is she going to do with that? Standing up front, talking. Well, this is what John Ortberg said. It was so helpful to me. He said, we need to remember that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, was writing a letter at a specific time to a specific church facing specific issues. And what Paul is addressing in this section of this letter, go home and read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and you'll see what I'm talking about. He's addressing disorderly worship, all kinds of things that cause chaos in the early church. And what he was addressing here was that women who were now allowed to learn You have to understand, previous to this, women had not been allowed to learn. But all of a sudden, here's this Jesus. Just look at the uh, Mary and Martha story. We often think that's about being too busy or having our priorities straight. What Mary did was she sat at the feet of a rabbi. And when you sit at the feet of a rabbi, that means you're a student. And you're learning from that rabbi. And Jesus honored her and blessed what she was doing. So women were being allowed to learn. And what was happening was they were disrupting the church service for everyone. Historians believe that in many of the early churches, men and women sat in separate sections to keep apart from one another because who knows what could happen. And Paul is saying to the women, stop disrupting the church service. Be quiet here. And learn from the teachers. And if you have questions, don't interrupt and yell across the room to your husbands on the other side. Wait until you get home and ask the questions at home. Now, no one had ever taught me that this was the specific context that Paul was writing to. No one had pointed out that this passage, if you look at it, even just in light of the rest of 1 Corinthians, 
It could not be taken at face value because in the same letter, Paul tells women, he tells them to pray at church and to prophesy, which was teaching the authoritative word of God. They had to be able to speak. And in other letters, Paul honors women for leading a church. So to truly understand this passage, we have to work hard to understand what the specific circumstances were that Paul was addressing, or else we get it all wrong. We read it in our modern-day English translation and think we know exactly what it means, and we actually miss the boat. Next passage that, Paul, that John Ortberg looked at. Doesn't get any easier here. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Paul or Timothy or Paul is giving a bunch of instructions on worship. And then he says these words. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. That's a hard text, isn't it? In in the first century Middle East, what is radically new in this passage that we just don't catch as Westerners is that Paul says at the very beginning, a woman should learn. We get all hung up on quietness and full submission. But what was radical was that Paul was using the imperative form of the word should which meant that this was a command. Women were now being commanded to learn in a culture where they were not previously allowed to learn. And they were to learn, yes, in quietness and submission, but to whom? To men? It does not say that. What Paul was saying is that women should have appropriate submission to their teachers and to God and to the biblical text as they learn. He goes on then and says... I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, what's interesting for us to pay attention to here is the, the, the verb do not is not in the imperative. And it's, a, it's in a much softer form of the Greek word. And many believe that this was simply a reference to a current situation that was happening at the church of Ephesus having to do with women. It was not a universal truth. Many believed it could be translated more accurately as, currently I am not permitting women to teach. The point Paul is trying to make here was that women at Ephesus must not use their newfound status as learners to seek to dominate or to correct their current teachers, all of whom were men. Women must learn before they teach. And I don't think any of us would disagree with that. But verse 13, these last couple sentences are where things get tricky. So let's just read it right out and then we'll talk about it. This is what Paul writes. He says, and Adam was not the one, oh, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. He, he goes on then to say, but women will be saved through childbearing. I'm not going to unpack that one, first of all, because I don't know about you, but childbearing did not feel like salvation to me in any way. Second of all, it's a super complicated passage, and most people just say, I have no idea what he meant. So let's just look at verse 13 and following. When you read it at face value, it sounds like Paul is saying that Adam is better than Eve because he was created first. But if that is true, 
then dogs and cats are better than all of us because they were created before humans. This is some kind of doctrine of primacy. Some might say, well, that is true. Dogs and cats are better than humans. And I kind of believe it. Maybe not cats, but especially dogs, especially chocolate labs. And it also sounds in this part like Paul is blaming Eve for everything. And trust me, through the centuries, this verse has run that way. Eve is the problem. But this can't be true because Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12 that sin came into this world through one man. It's shared guilt. So what was Paul really getting at here? Again, we have to think about the context and the unique situation he was addressing. He's talking about issues of learning and teaching. And so he's saying, he's reminding the church That Eve was not present when God gave the command to not eat from the tree to Adam. Go back and read Genesis 2. Eve wasn't on the scene yet when Adam learned the rules of the garden. Therefore, she was deceived. And she was deceived not because she was a woman, but because she had not learned. She was simply not there when the instructions were given. This is a warning to women to not try to teach before they learn. And their learning must be reverent and quiet and submitted to God. Again, Ortberg started to say, when we learn, when we look at these verses in their cultural and specific context, and then do one other thing, we hold these passages up to the reality that women were actually speaking in churches and teaching and leading in churches in Paul's day and that Paul was commending them. He wasn't dismissing them. He was actually elevating them and saying, look at these women, honor these women. If that's true, how can you hold these two things in tension? There is no way that these passages mean what I had been taught they meant for years and years and years. The preponderance of the evidence of Scripture shows us that women in a culture that was crushing them, crushing them, were being set free by Jesus and the early church to become real, whole, full, equal human beings. And so my mind started to change that night, and a whole new world started to open up. Little did I know I was 20 years behind Orchard Hill Church's denomination. The Reformed Church of America voted in 1972 to have women elders and deacons. And in 1979, they voted to ordain women to the pastorate. I was stunned by that. And my friends from Orchard Hill Church, one of them an elder that night, turned to me and simply said, you have the gift of teaching and you need to use it in the church. Needless to say, I was up all night. And there was one last hurdle I had to cross. In May of 2000, I walked into Dave Bartlett's office and said to him, I'm starting to believe that I have the gift of teaching, and others are affirming that in in me. And what I need to know is this, and you have to know how serious I was when I asked him this question. Is it safe for me to practice the gift of teaching here in this church? Is it safe for me? And in typical Dave Bartlett fashion, he got a big fat grin on his face and he said to me, oh, I don't know if it's safe. Do you want to try to find out? 
And so in July 2000, while basically the entire church leadership was off on some camping trip, I realize now he only asked me that because he had no one else to put in the pulpit that morning, okay? Everybody was gone. I taught my very first sermon. I had spent six weeks working on it. I memorized every single word. It was called Busy or Listening, What Would God Say About You? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I wrote in my journal the next day, I finally know why I'm here on this earth. I feel like for the first time in my life, except for the experience of being a wife and a mom, I've landed in my own skin. Now, can I say that the last 15 years have been easy? Nope. And I think in many ways you should ask Dave Bartlett that question because he he took a bunch of the arrows that first came, not me. There have been really hard days. And there have been people who are not happy with me teaching women, leading women, elders and deacons, but basically at our church, that ship has left the dock. The joys have certainly outweighed the struggles. I just told the folks at Lincoln Center, I taught a few years ago at Pleasant Valley Church in Holland. I don't know if they'd ever had a woman teach there. And then I went downstairs afterwards. We had coffee and cookies. And one of the elderly men who also happened to be on their elder board, he looked up at me and he said, you know, we couldn't really find anybody to preach this day and so we were talking about who we should get and I finally looked at everybody and said well how's about a lady (laughs) and he said to me I said to them what's the difference between a man and a woman anyway I'll leave that conversation but they were so gracious and kind and then there's a woman um, she doesn't go to our church anymore from Cedar Falls who was a truck driver and she would always come up and say to me I absolutely disagree with you teaching but the problem is when you teach I learn stuff She said, so I'm just going to live with the tension, and I just want you to know that. And I said, that's so fine. I just gave her a big hug, and we laughed about it. I taught at Lincoln Center. I know when they kind of came under the wing of Orchard, one of the things they asked Dave is, do we have to do the thing with the woman teacher part? They didn't kind of want to take on that part of Orchard. And Dave said, you get one of us, you get all of us. And uh, they've been so kind and gracious to me, and I thanked them for opening their church to me and giving me a shot i cannot imagine myself as myself without being a teacher here and the truth of the matter is every church has to decide what their practice is going to be every church has to decide they have to look at these passages look at the preponderance of evidence in the scripture look how the spirit of god is moving through history and decide what the practice will be when it comes to men and women and spiritual gifts, and teaching, and speaking in church, and leadership. And I want to acknowledge that good, God-fearing, Bible-honoring churches land in different places on this, and we honor that. But we also know that sometimes churches look at Orchard, and churches like Orchard, and say, they're not biblical. And we want to say, we absolutely believe that we're biblical, and we're looking at the whole of the scriptural text when we make our decision. And Orchard Hill has decided, based on the preponderance of the biblical evidence, that the scriptures call us uniquely to be a church and a community of men and women called equally by God to share in the gifting of the Holy Spirit 
and called equally to steward those gifts by using them to the best of our ability and with all the strength God gives us. I love what um, Peter said um, in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit came upon Christ's followers and people were accusing them of being drunk and they didn't know what was going on. And Peter tries to explain to the crowd what this new thing is, this new thing called the church. And he pulls from the prophet Joel. These amazing passages in um, Acts 2, starting with verse 17. This is what Peter says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And remember, to prophesy means to teach the authoritative word of God. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy for any of us to hide our gifts and to not use them for the good of the body because of our gender diminishes the work of God in the world I believe that with my whole heart and churches disagree on this issue my friends but I am so glad I am at this church and I hope you are too and I cannot wait to see what God is going to uniquely do through each one of you, women and men, young and old, rich and poor, to build his kingdom here in Grundy County and to set more and more people free to become who they were created to be in Christ. And I look forward to sharing the rest of that journey with you wherever God takes us. Let me pray. God, this is a hard issue, an issue that has split churches, an issue that women, or that, that all people, men and women, tend to kind of want to fall on their sword for. And God, I know that churches land in different places on how they understand the scriptures, and we honor that, and we're grateful for that. But this is where Orchard lands, Lord. We we land in a place where we are all going to watch for the Spirit's movement in each other's lives. We're going to take the time to call out gifts in each other. And then we're going to do whatever we can to fan those gifts into flame for the good of the body and the good of the world around us who's just waiting for good news. And thank you, God, that the gospel is good news for both men and women. I'm so grateful for that. And now, God in our gratitude to you for who you are and what you've done among us. May we continue to worship with our voices, both men and women, no longer silent in the church. Amen.